Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Thursday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. Sometimes I feel selfish about creating Fraudology because a lot of times it's an excuse to hop on a call and talk with someone who's brilliant in fraud and for me to get to learn from them. By far, my favorite conversations are when I start to kind of nerd out with fellow fraud fighters. And at some point, at least for a minute or two, I'll forget that we're recording the podcast because I'm in the moment. I'm learning from them and I'm thinking of new thoughts and ideas as they talk. And then we're building off of each other. And I'm so glad that you guys enjoy being a fly on the wall to those conversations so that this isn't selfish, but it's conversations like I had today that honestly make me just so grateful that all of you do enjoy and support Fraudology. So try not to get too cheesy, but that's just where I'm at today. And that was definitely the case with my conversation today with Doriel Abrahams. I really had fun with this. And I think you guys will too, because we talked about a lot of things that often don't get talked about either in Fraudology or other platforms as possible strategies and solutions. Or honestly, they really go against conventional wisdom in some cases, or at least what was conventional wisdom a few years ago. This will be fun. So Doriel is the head of risk for Forder US. And in quite a few ways, his role is very similar to those of you who head up the entire strategy from the analytics to the deployment of new models and products for giant marketplaces and top five retailers because he's responsible for all of that and several other things for all merchant portfolios that go through Forder's network. And if you know of even a few of the brands that use Forder, you know that he's a very busy guy. He does talk about how grateful he is to have some pretty good technology to rely on and great team members as well. But I have learned a lot from him already. And if you've heard my interview with Galit Saporta and Shoshana Marini, the authors of Practical Fraud Prevention by O'Reilly Publishing last year, or if you've gotten a chance to read their book, you know how just insanely intelligent and thoughtful about fraud strategy they both are. And it's through them that I actually know of Doriel. Whenever either Galit or Shoshana say that they want me to meet someone that they think that I will, that I'll really enjoy meeting and someone that they know or that they've worked with, like in this case, I always jump at the opportunity. Another person who I met through Galit and Shoshana is Gil Rosenthal, and he's been a favorite guest on the podcast over the last two years. So if that gives you any indication of just the very smart people that these incredibly smart fraud fighters know. And so when I first actually got to speak with Doriel, it was at the height of the master manipulators, which is what we called them. It was a giant crime ring that Shoshana Marini came on the podcast to talk about in November. It was attacking all retailers all at once during a holiday peak season. 
And in case you weren't a retailer at that time or you don't remember the name of the master manipulators, this was a very large, well-organized and sophisticated group that was really focusing on triangulation by performing a lot of very unique address manipulation tactics across all retailers all at once. And it was something we had never seen before. And because I had so many retailers reaching out to me and I got several on a call, actually a couple calls during Black Friday, Cyber Monday, and that whole time to share information and, okay, how are you guys catching them? How are you catching them, et cetera? I reached out to a few people that were more on the vendor side to get information for those retailers of what was working for a few solution providers that were accurately identifying these and providing them some tips and tricks that they could apply themselves. It had nothing to do with, oh, this company is doing it this way and you need to, it was too late in the game for anyone to install new technology to get a hold of these guys. So it was really just, here's what is working over, here's what's working over there that wasn't proprietary or wasn't dependent on specific technology. So one of the people I called was Doriel because there were a few large retailers on those calls who admittedly told me, we actually, I don't think we have this problem. And I was like, oh, I'm sure you do because your competitors do and you have a very large brand. So I'm sure they're targeting you. And one of them was especially worried about it and went back and looked at all of his data. And he, he reached out and was like, oh, actually, they are trying to hit us, but our provider is finding them before it even gets to us. And I was like, okay, then I need to talk to them. And that was how I met Doriel. I just wanted to be able to understand how are you guys finding them? And some other providers who claim that they are the exact same as you guys have literally confessed to their clients that this is unprecedented and unknown and the biggest attack ever and that they have no way of identifying it. That was an interesting observation during that time that I kind of tucked away. But like I said, at the moment, I was just focused on how can I help more retailers? And so was Doriel as well. So I really appreciated that. And within five minutes, it was very clear that Galit and Shoshana were so right that we are just two peas in a pod for lack of a better term. And that is so cheesy. But if you're in fraud, you get it. A lot of us feel like kindred spirits, but there's this whole, uh, there's a group within the group where you're just like, oh, we're on the same mind meld. Just keep rolling your eyes at me. It's okay. My teenager does it all the time and I do it to myself, so it's fine. But today, Doriel joined me to talk about a few of the ways that they approach fraud and really the greater importance of identifying the fraudulent transactions and accounts while also increasing sales volume and overall revenue. We know from so many conversations on fraudology and just knowing in general, that's really our job now. It's not just to identify fraud. It's also to find ways to make sure that our good customers are getting through without any bad experiences and that we're providing more opportunities for good customers without insulting them or having false positives. And like I mentioned a few minutes ago, some of the way they do things are going to go against what conventional wisdom has been, what's been adopted and passed down over the years in our industry. And I think that's good. I hope it challenges you to think about things about the way you do things now. And that's why I wanted to talk about these. So one of the things that they don't have that blew my mind at first 
is that they don't believe in using negative or positive lists. They don't believe in having a negative list or a black or white list, however you explain it, you'll call it in your company or within your solution or your tool. And at first I was like, how? And that, but then it made sense. And I think it will to you too. They've also found ways to use 3D Secure in the US to actually increase sales volume and retain revenue in a completely frictionless way to customers. I am not saying this as a commercial, that's legit. And you'll get to hear that in just a couple minutes. And also how they've started building relationships with some of the biggest issuers in the world to decrease their merchant bank decline volume. So Doriel and his team through, you know, because they are true fraud fighters, they're looking at the data and they're not just thinking about this is what we were told a few years ago, or this is how that product was then. So we're, you know, it, this worked for us then. So let's keep doing it. They're looking at the data and saying, actually, maybe we don't need this anymore, or maybe that didn't work for us before, but it will now in combination with this and this. And just really looking under the couch cushions for extra money and extra sales for their clients. And they know that makes their clients very happy and even more important, their customers coming back to those merchants and retailers. Like I always say, I think the worst reason to do something is to do it because it's the way it's always been done. That's why I am excited for you to listen to this episode with Doriel. I am still laughing about his comment about what he, how am I going to say this without giving it away? What he compared to shawarma, which is a well-known meat dish in the Middle East, in Israel, his home country. I was watching Top Chef with my husband the other day and actually asked him to pause it so I could tell him the story and tell him what Doriel compared to shawarma and I'm still laughing about that. That's just a fun little Easter egg for you. Not as fraud focused, but you'll find that he's just fun to listen to. I enjoy that as well as learning from him and going, huh, I hadn't thought about that. Tell me why that works that way. I know you're going to enjoy this episode. And if any questions come to your mind while you're listening, especially for Doriel, write them down. Because after this conversation, I'll tell you how you can have Doriel answer those questions either on a future episode of the podcast or one-on-one. -on -one. So thanks again, you guys, for all your support and making this part of my job just so much fun and rewarding. And I look forward to hearing what you think about my conversation with Doriel Abrahams. Fraudology is now brought to you by Sardine. So what is Sardine? I mean... Other than a small oily fish in the herring family, Sardine is a fraud tech platform that was ultimately built by fraud fighters for fellow fraud fighters with the features that they wanted in a fraud provider when they worked for companies within financial services, e-commerce, digital banking, and consumer lending. They're a team who geeks out on the same minute data that indicate a fraud pattern or anomaly as we do, and they run investigations every day. Sardine's product is even measured with the same KPIs as you probably are. More specifically, Sardine has combined more than 30 data providers into one tool for you. Benchmarked for performance into a single dashboard, an API that can be used for KYC, AML, and payment fraud detection. But crucially, they also allow Sardine customers to use their own data, to access their own data, as well as the results from all data providers they work with and the features Sardine has created as they, their customers, 
need to use them. There's no more mysterious black box that calculates the risk of new accounts, logins, or transactions and magically turns them into a score that was most likely based on attributes that look risky to other business models. For some clients, they use sardines as their full stack for all account onboarding, transaction monitoring, case management, etc. Others use them as a sophisticated data provider. Basically, Sardine fits to you rather than vice versa. So if you want to see for yourself that the product you've always wanted finally exists, you can book a demo at www.sardine.ai or by clicking the link in the show notes for today's episode. Today, I am here with Doriel Abrahams. He is head of risk at Forder US. And if you think that my conversation with Doriel today is going to be a standard conversation with a solution provider in fraud, yeah, no, that not even close. If anything, within five minutes of meeting Doriel, about six months ago, we were introduced on a call together and it took us about five minutes to realize that we are two big time nerds in fraud. And the person who introduced us on the call was just kind of, I don't even know what's happening right now. You guys are diving into things. So he is definitely a kindred spirit with me as well as so many of you who listen. And something I think is awesome is a lot of times solution providers get to have a 10,000 foot view and get to see fraud across a lot of different verticals and different business models so we can learn a lot. So Doriel, thank you so much for joining me at Fraudality. Thank you for having me, Chris. I'm really happy to be here and I was looking forward for this conversation for quite some time now. I think it took us some time to schedule it. It's nice to be here. We're both very busy, but that's like common (laughs) for those of us putting out fires on a regular basis, right? <laughs> that is very true. And I'm very happy that we got a chance to talk today. And again, thank you for having me. Me too. And we'll talk about this more later on today. The first time I spoke with you, I was trying to get my hands around the address manipulation that was happening that we learned so much about in Shoshana Marini. And I spoke about and really Shoshana coined them the master manipulators and something that really me if I'm being honest, but I was glad about it was just how some of the merch, the larger merchants that use order had said, we don't think we have this problem. And I was saying, oh, I'm sure you do. So I wanted to reach out to you directly and say, how are you identifying this first? Because I know that's not the case with every front provider. That'll be something for people to look forward to us talking a little bit about soon, but just kind of to help other people get to know you. What did you think you were going to be when you grew up? What did you want to be? To go on vast back. Okay, yeah. Okay, not sorry, the head, of, it's not the head of risk for Forder US, I'm assuming, but maybe I'm wrong. Uh, no, it, was, yeah. it wasn't top of the list for sure, even if it was some, <laughs> somewhere up there. Growing up in a family of six kids in an old kind of small town in northern Israel, I really thought I'd grow up to be an actor. I always used to put up shows and do acts for my family and they very much, an, I would say, an expressive personality, to say. And funnily enough, that what I was trying to do, finishing my high school in Israel, you have to do some time with the army, so I've done that. And then after that, moved to Tel Aviv, big city. And I thought I was going to be an actor, which is kind of interesting. But yeah, definitely did not turn out the way I thought for all sorts of reasons. 
given up the dream. And my then girlfriend, now wife, basically told me, okay, I'm signing you up for university. Just whatever you want, <laughs> just decide something you're going to learn, going to do something. And I, I love Israeli uh, actually... women. That's exactly how she probably, <laughs> she probably said it. <laughs> it sounds funny and it sounds weird, but it's what for one exactly what happened. And I found myself opening up in the Tel Aviv University website, looking up for interesting courses. And I came across one in, was a joint degree in basically neuroscience, but it's biology and linguistics with an emphasis on neuroscience, which was super interesting. I registered for the year after and I started my studies. And while I was, while I was studying, I think between the first and second year, it's like a three year degree, I saw a Facebook post saying, hey, do you want to catch online thieves? We're kind of we're looking for fraud analysts in a company called Forder. Never heard of it before. I send my CV and fast forward seven years, here I am. That's how I kind of got from being an actor to fighting fraud for Forder. I'm sure I'm not the only person who's trying to get past the fact that you saw a <laughs> Facebook post for a job listing just because like in fraud, that wouldn't happen now. Right? But seven years ago, it's yes. a little different. So I think, especially in the Israeli tech community, it was, uh, I think, the golden like era and of, 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 yeah, like in the Facebook groups, there was a lot of different groups for like people who are looking like a, yeah. like whatever, like an entry-level jobs in, uh, in yeah. tech. So it was like a lot of people were there. It was like a huge community in Israel of people posting jobs and finding and bringing out friends. And it's funny because I did not know the person who put up this ad back then, but he turned out to be my actually direct boss from then until today. We kind of grew together in the company. And so thank you for that as well. Yeah. So you had shared with me before we were recording that part of your studies in kind of neuroscience and linguistics and all of that involved slicing up brains and literally looking at the matter that powers our thinking, which is just created. There's some, I was trying to think of some kind of joke between slicing up brains and then trying to identify intentions and all of that just by a few data points in an e-commerce <laughs> order. But I don't, there's not really a joke there. I don't know. I'm sure my husband could find it quickly, but. I can say uh, it's the same. I definitely see kind of the uh, prosaic aspect of it, which is, yeah. but yeah, I, cutting up brains, it looks mostly like a shawarma and I ended up being a vegetarian for five years a after that. So. <laughs> <laughs> so there's too much, but yeah, it was an, a very interesting an exciting experience, I think, to kind of see how we're all made of, basically, it looks all the same on the inside. So it's pretty shaking experience. Yeah. Uh, enlightening in a way. Yeah. And I think that there is actually a through line there from acting to neuroscience and understanding how the brain works and what powers it and how people form words and, and all of that to identifying malicious and nefarious behavior. Especially if it's all problem solving in a way, right? It's all learning about human behavior just in different ways. How else do you see those worlds being similar and yet different? But I think what I, I mean, yes, first of all, I agree with what you're saying, even though it has, and I just said, like romantic essence to it, it's not right. necessary for, but <laughs> I do think that during different my perspectives studies, of the brain and yeah. yeah, what, you know, what powers Absolutely. people to do things. Absolutely. And I think like the way, again, I'm science, I'm very much like, I'm a scientific person, I've studied, mm. studied evolution and biology and how things evolve. And definitely I see things that are part of in terms of 
people acquire a language, like as kids or as adults, how one of the things that are like would always happen. Someone, for example, and we can maybe touch upon it later, you can hear I have a very strong accent in Hebrew. I can train myself and I can change my accent to an extent, but I'll never be able to completely eliminate those tracks of me as a person. Maybe that's kind of, I don't want to bury the lead, but that might lead to a way further things of how to identify personas and fraud in a way. And I think this becomes even more interesting when you think of in like evolution of maybe species parts in the brain, but also fraud patterns, the self-hiving of the fittest. If something works, fraudsters will do it again and they'll get better at that. If you're able to stop them, if you're able to hermetically close a certain window, no one's going to tap that again. That's how it happens. And I I have in mind a few examples we can talk about and see how those things can really happen. And I think what's unique about dealing with fraud, and maybe that does tie back to what you said about figuring out the human mind and even acting, getting into someone else's kind of reaction emotion what's interesting about fraud is yes you absolutely see how the fraud the anti-fraud mechanism you put in place as a merchant as an online store impacts the way users and fraudsters interact with your store human react to reinforcement if it's positive or negative they'll do different things and that's why it's super crucial when you're thinking about your fraud strategy and we're seeing a lot of different merchants who does that to take into consideration a lot of different things. Yeah. Going to use multiple vendors. It impacts the performance you're going to see because you don't know, like a fraud doesn't know if they're going to hit vendor A or vendor B. Or if you're giving them the option to retry or if you're trying to do a trash to treasure with things that were rejected. All of those things would impact the way a fraudster behaves. I, I've seen just in that vein, I think it's a really interesting example of just some sort of a UI bug in one of the partners we were working with, like those years ago, where essentially if you click really fast on the checkout button, like five, six times, it will send all of those transactions to processing, but only the first one would go through the for- fraud vendor just by way of whatever, whatever tech setup. So if a fraudster accidentally double tap on the checkout button once and they see that it happens, they'll do it again. And that's the vulnerability that, again, it was a very simple, like easy to fix UI bug. These things actually impact the way fraudsters interact with what, what's happening and the way they can defraud you. So it's interesting to, to see how those things mature into reality when you see it. I couldn't agree more, obviously. And I think that it's so it's true. I think that there's one of the biggest mistakes or probably the biggest mistake that I see online companies make. And I mean, to be honest, it's not all their fault that they're making it is just assuming that a fraud vendor is a fraud vendor. They're all alike and that they will all, or maybe they're assuming that fraud is so obvious that it comes in red bleeding lights. So any fraud vendor could find it. And that was more true 15 years ago than it is now. I have seen the landscape be very different across lots of things, whether that means it's a solution provider that was top of their game seven, eight years ago, but now because of outside impacts, they have not reinvested, but they may tell their merchants, oh yeah, you have great scores or their merchant just doesn't know that there's so much more opportunity going to something else, whether it's you know, okay, machine learning, everyone can say they have machine learning, but how does it work? And how are you using it? That's like saying, I have an electric car. Okay, well, like they're not all the same. Or I have a car, they're not all the same. Now they'll all get, you know, a car, any car that's working can get you from point A to point B. But what's that experience for you? What's that experience 
if you get in a car accident, what's that experience? You know, if you have kids in your car or anything else, or if it's hot outside or it's cold or any, you know, it's ice or whatever, it matters. And I feel like every year that goes by, it matters even more. And that's a big reason why I am so selective in the companies that I work with, especially like in public platforms like this. But it, I wish it didn't matter so much, but it really does. And to your point, it's not just the provider, it's how you use it. And it's all of those things and the way that you implement it or the other or the way that you can gather data to know if something like that is happening or at least seeing signs that wait, like we need to figure out, we may not know what's happening, but we know something's happening. To be able to have all of that is so important because it, there's no longer just a couple of plays in the fraudster playbook. Now there's so many different teams of fraudsters and different kinds of different motivations and different tools and different methods and all these different things that you need to know like how you're how you're setting those things up, right? And like, are we going to do three secure at the front? Are we going to do at the back? Are we going to do post auth? Are we going to do pre auth? Are we going to do? There's a bazillion different questions. So even if you're using the same fraud provider as another company, you might have it set up completely different, or you might be using somebody else at the beginning or not, and it might make it better or worse, not just for the fraudster, but also for the customer, like you said, too. From a human perspective, you know, yeah, we we all adapt and really can be trained monkeys if we need to be as far as it's like that we, we treat people how to teach us well. When it comes to that from a website perspective and commerce, we're in a way treating our customers how what they can get away with, what they can't, and also how easy or not easy we want their experience. Absolutely. And I think you've hit on a few really good points there. First, people, especially in the States, will change their car once a year or once a week. <laughs> Yet can stick with the same solution provider for a decade, if not more, without <laughs> That's a separate topic. But I also think that what I've discovered in fraud, the way I see it, and I, I think kind of that speaks to also the company I work for, a good fraud provider should not be focused on stopping fraud only because a good fraud strategy can actually generate a lot more in addition to revenue. And I like all the, like the lens through I'm seeing those things is how to optimize revenue, how to make your good customers use you more and how you even, and again, we can talk about that, the ways of how you know, to optimize payments without a risk, essentially. You can use a lot of different tools, some of which we offer, some of them are just out there for you to use, and to basically check liability for transactions you're not super sure of, capture the funds risk-free, and still have amazing results. So all of these things, like I'm, and it's every year I'm looking at it. The biggest item is false positive. Like how many people were turning away for thinking there might be suspicious. And we can talk about how different types of setups can solve for uh, really? different those issues, but absolutely. If I know it's obviously I'm a listener to your podcast, I know you talk about it a lot, but fraud is not only about stopping fraud. Mm. It's about optimizing the lifetime value of customers and generating additional revenue. That's what it's about. How you maximize your work in this chaos to maximize the revenue you can achieve. I obviously couldn't agree more. And I think that it's by shorthand that we say that we're the fraud department, but to me, the fraud department is really revenue protection. 
And protection doesn't just mean keeping the bad guys out. To me, it also means keeping the good guys in because quite frankly, they're the ones who pay your paychecks. They're the ones who might impact your retirement fund or your stock. But at the end of the day, it's also just what's great. You've got legitimate people who want your company's goods and services. Like that should happen. I think that I'd love to drill down a little bit more on what you were just saying as far as optimizing payments, because that is something that I've found really fascinating. Most fraud providers are looking at any opportunity before the bank makes their decision. Oftentimes it's post-authorization, as we call it, or maybe, you know, there are some they're capturing some signals before that card is authorized. But if the bank says no, they treat that as a hard and fast rule. And then they make a decision just based on anything that the bank says yes. on. Something that I know because I started out on the payment side is sometimes the issuers need no more information or sometimes the issue like there's a lot of things that can actually impact issuers to approve more transactions. And I know that's something you guys have worked on. And so I'd love to hear a little bit on that as far as what you guys have learned there as you dove into that, but also mentioned maybe using 3D Secure strategically. I don't think you said 3D Secure, but that was what I understood you to be applying. And that's something I'm asked quite often by people in the States, especially, although I also want to know how you've seen PSD2 and all that change fraud on the other side of the pond. But how do you see those things being used help the companies that you work with? If people had never thought of that, like either increasing bank authorizations and or using 3D Secure, because obviously most of the time it's not used in the US because everyone remembers 3DS 1.0 from the early 2000s. <laughs> yes, we're all scarred by that. We are. Absolutely. So I think first off, your first point, that's exactly right. Issuers, issuing banks have no intention to authorize a transaction if they don't think it's going to be a good transaction. And what they don't have is the fraud system that you as a merchant, I'm not even talking about merchants that work with orders specifically, which they will probably do what we do the best. But besides the point of issuers don't know what they don't know. And one way in which we've found that we can actually generate this uplift in, in authorization rate is simply for relationships with issuing banks. And essentially work with the merchant in a pre-auth capacity, like you mentioned. So we're inspecting a transaction before it's being even sent to the bank. And at the point where the bank receives the transaction from the merchant, we've already flagged that transaction. Then, hey, Mr. Bank, you're going to get a transaction from merchant A, B, C, whatever. And you can make whatever decision you want with that transaction based on your own model. Just know that Forder has seen this transaction and we're saying it's good. So if you're getting this transaction, it is flagged by Forder as it's past Forder's filter. Whether that's going to impact their decision or not, obviously, it depends on other things. If, for example, that card is malformed and there's no such credit card, there's nothing to charge, of course, they're not going to approve the, the transaction. Or if there's no funds in their account or that person is in whatever default payment or whatever it is, the reason is they might reject it for non-fraud reasons. But if the only reason they would have rejected that transaction because it looks suspicious, they would say, well, if order says yes, who are we to say no? And that's one way that we've, we were actually able to generate sometimes it can be up to 3% and additional authorization, which is unheard of when you think about it in terms of authorization rate. And, and then actually, your just, second. And I'm so sorry because you're right. I asked two questions, right. but just to add to that, <laughs> I know of one of the top probably five, maybe ten max 
merchants that tried to do this themselves and they built relationships with issuers directly and they for the big ones it, it took a long time right and they had to do a presentation each time saying hey this is exactly what we're looking at this is what we're doing to measure risk for our customers so we will put and we will only put the transact for them they did it differently where they routed transactions that look good on on a specific merchant id so they said anything on this merchant id is trusted and we've done it. And because the merchant takes the fraud liability, then issuers are willing to say, okay, because issuers don't want to plan transactions either, right? For the most part, as long as if it's not fraud, because they know that if they decline too many of their customers' transactions at their part, that customer is just going to say, I'm going to use a different bank, especially in the US when we have, you often, it's common to have- Switch banks, yeah. Yeah, to have different credit cards from different banks. That's why there's so many other issues in this country, but that's another story. Whenever you work in fraud, you can't help but look at the root cause all the time, whether it's good or bad, but and whether anyone cares or not. But but something I know is then they did international banks and then they did the small banks. It took one person almost four years to he did nothing but travel. Like he never got to see his kid going from like country to country. I was jealous of his air miles and I was jealous of some of his experiences. But it was ridiculous and they were able to do it, but it was so much time and work. And there are other things you can do. I've mentioned this, I think, on a previous podcast where I did a test with a merchant where they weren't asking for CVV. And once they asked for CVV, they saw their bank issuing authorization go up because the bank was getting one more set of data. And they were like, oh, okay, that gives us a little bit more certainty. That is our account holder. That one way that you could also do that, obviously, is through security secure because you're giving them even yep. more information. But the biggest challenge there with most people in the U.S. is, but that's going to kill our conversion. So here's the thing about the So first of all, like you said, yes, more data generates more trust with the issuing bank and that data can be either a CVV or a forwarder flag or whatever it is. 3DS gives you an extra icing on the cake, which is the shift of the liability. There is a chargeback that comes after a fairly secure check has been authorized or authenticated, whatever you want to call it. You're not liable for the chargeback. The credit network takes on the liability. This is, it is mind-blowing because people don't know that and they don't use it. And yes, I understand. And everybody's scarred with the 3GS one. <laughs> you can say it's horrible or not horrible, whatever it is. I don't think it's a big deal to, to have to get a text message. And anyway, most of my purchases I'm doing through my phone and the phone populates like the code anyway, like it's nothing. But there are instances for whatever reason, I'm using my wife card. She's using my the phone that's registered on the bank. It's a phone that he's ready for. Who knows? Maybe we didn't even get it. Maybe it was a timeout. Maybe it was a lot of different things. And yes, on average, on a 3DS.1, of like almost 50% abandonment rate. Abandonment, failure, timeout, what it is insane. No one wants that. And we'll talk about Europe in a second. Yeah, but even issuers don't have that, right? Like, you don't want that, that to yeah. happen either, right? Yeah. Uh, but now we have 3DS.2, the meaningful version. It is frictionless. And you know what's even better about it? And that's something, again, depends on who is your 3DS operator or executor. When we do that, we can offer it to our customers. We can validate if a card is enrolled into 3DS before we even send it. And only when it's valid, we can send that to the 3DS2. A frictionless, 100% conversion, zero liability, and you can really enjoy, first of all, decreased fraud rates because you see no fraud, it's all uh -huh. shifted. But you can also optimize your revenue by just approving more transactions that you would otherwise have rejected or direct them to a manner of UQ or have them call someone and validate their identity. 
you just use this beautiful, elegant tool of 3DS to optimize your payment. Now, if you add that, and I'm not saying do one, I'm saying do all. So if yes. you're communicating with the issue, you have a really good, solid, robust fraud prevention mechanism. That's pre-op. You have the ability to run 3DS in an intelligent way, not just send everything to 3DS because that would put you at odds with the issuer for sure as well. You can essentially, on top of whatever great performance you have now, you can save another, again, depends on what are the circumstances, which industry, what's your user base like, three to 5% extra revenue. And all you had to do is simply one additional step that has zero impact on your convert. And then when it goes back to what keep saying is fraud prevention is not all fraud handling, or like you said, it's unlike the revenue optimization. It's, it stops being about how to stop fraudsters beginning, how am I generating trust with my transaction? So even a transaction that might be fraudulent, I trust it to be okay enough because I've shifted the liability, because I've gotten trust from the issuer. And that's how, and also, as funny as it may seem, not a lot of people think this way, and I just try to remind a lot of people that's like pure arithmetics. If you have higher approval rates, even for the same dollars of fraud that you're losing, you're going to have lower rates because so, you expanded the denominator. So just naturally, you have a lower rate, which can also improve your relationship with issuing banks and processors. And therefore, they'll put you in lower, yeah, and yeah. they'll put you on lower risk buckets. That just, that's basically, you know, it's like taking your transaction setup to a CDMD or whatever urgent care you have, West Coast. But it's like, doing like a health sanity check on your traffic. And that's how we see things here. And I've seen a lot of different instances where like the results are mind-blowing. Oh, I can't. I'm sure because knowing the payment side, I know how those things are not set in stone. Everything is subjective. Just all the way through to the end of the transaction with chargebacks, how you respond to them matters for how much you get back and all that. There's not just one standard way. And okay, if this provider or if this internal team, this, it, no, you should be continually tweaking. I think it's really Absolutely. cool that you've been able to see it at such a high level and see so many really good results to be able to advise your customers of that. One thing I wanted to point out is historically when Fortner was first around, I think that they were most known as a chargeback coverage, a company that provided chargeback liability. And so if, you know, someone's hearing you say, oh, that must be nice for you guys if you're just passing on your liability to the, to the issuers through 3D Secure. However, over the last few years, you changed your business model to, I think, and I don't want to totally speak for you, but I know that as a company, you've seen that actually there's a lot of benefits in not really charging for chargeback insurance and instead providing tools like this, other ways to provide liability shift to merchants. And that also often means less fees because they aren't paying for that in the off chance that a chargeback happens. It's not trying to be covered. Yeah, absolutely. For core transparency, we still offer all models and that's yes. it's up to the, in most cases, it's up to the merchant to choose which route to run. Clearly, there are financial differences and there are significant because if we're taking the liability, we need to make sure that we get to keep what we need for our profits. But you're absolutely right. Once we made that decision to, to offer the uncovered, the market responded with, okay, that's great that you can commit to a certain performance or make sure that our performance would still not be 
too high in terms of fraud rates or things we will need to take on liability for. So we had to essentially come up with ways to generate that trust, to show our partners how we are achieving all those low fraud rates and how we're able to reduce their costs to both avenues because they'll pay less for the fraud vendor. They don't need to pay for coverage, but they also are not incurring high or too high of fraud rates. Right. And then essentially when you think about it, it's pure innovation. I feel like there's company within a company, almost all of our payment optimization initiatives are all brand new things that came from genuine need to show that extra value and to be able to provide that. I want to say ease of mind to our partners that they know that they are protected in many different ways. Yeah. Another way we were able to solve that and show them how we're, we've got the same skin in the game and work them is we're also offering a pretty good charge recovery program. So yeah. we're saying, so you're liable for your fraud, Mr. Merchant, but Mr. or Mrs. Merchant, of course, and we can help you guys fight those frauds at the back end when they show up. So first of all, you close the tap because you don't want to drain the swamp while the tap's still running and you need to have a really good fraud prevention and reduce your charge Eventually, you're going to have challenges and you're going to want to fight them because occasionally there are ones that kind of you have to fight. It's very clear that this is some sort of sparty lie buyer fraud. And Not just that, but yeah, yeah. I was playing the chargebacks also trains issuers, just like you were talking earlier about Absolutely. Training, yeah. training your customers and fraudsters. I one of the biggest issuers in the U.S. and also in the world admitted to a large group of merchants that they will often, if there's a chargeback that's kind of in a gray area and they're not exactly sure if they'd win or not, they'll look to see if the merchant responds to chargebacks or and or they'll look to see if they send more arbitration than others. Because the arbitration piece is a third party, it's not so not to get too far that's, into the charge like, That also trains and reduces your losses in a way. However, if you respond to all chargebacks, then that train, then exactly. that's even worse. So it's working with companies that know all those things and that know how to train each piece. Just optimize exactly, the whole thing. It's exactly the same with 3DS. If you were saying, oh, well, 3DS is such a cool, such a great tool, let's just send everything to 3DS <laughs> and that's just all my liability. Good point. That's not, it's not that easy. And that's where you need to rely on smart optimization and make sure you have a system that makes intelligent decisions for each of those. Kind of, you have so many forks in the road for a transaction. What am I going to do? Am I going to approve it? Not approve it. Am I going to use 3DS or not? Am I going to have it go to matter review? Am I going to call out in front of the customer that's the final sale unreturnable so they're not going to abuse that route? There's so many decisions that you need to make in a lifetime of a transaction, not to mention when it comes back as a chargeback, then you know you screwed up at the first go. Now, but you have now a time for remediation and that's how you would use it. And yes, like not fighting chargebacks with the PSPs means admitting defeat on one end, but also finding all of them means that you're full of, and I want to say what, because you're just trying to fight everything. And that also does not put you in good place with the. No, because they so, right, yeah. they don't know what to look for, right? They don't, it's similar to what you did with the issue in banks, right? Going to them and saying, hey, let us show you what we're assessing. And if you think that's good enough, then we want you to increase authorization. We'll tell you, hey, we looked at all these things. We think this is good. That should be an extra stamp. It's the same way where if you're sending your PSP or your processor everything, then they don't know what to look at, what's crap and what's not, essentially, and what should be said not. So then their eyes glaze over and it gets muddled. So I think overall, I mean, optimizing all of it and think, making it clear that it's possible to optimize, right? That you should never sell until you've looked under every rock or looked for every opportunity. And 
these are all ways that you that fraud managers can go back to their team and or back to their leadership and say, hey, look, like we identified more revenue here and here. And we're not just looking for the bad. We're looking for the good, too. And we all know that teams and leaders that add to the bottom line often get higher budgets and and just better favor in the company. Absolutely. So we knew this would happen. We're not going to get through half of the thing, but, <laughs> but that's okay. I want to make sure that we, speaking of doing 3DS on everything, and it does matter that it's the market, however, obviously with PSD2 in Europe and others, for is not just a US-based fraud tool, you know, merchants everywhere that are based everywhere, as well as a lot of your clients maybe based in the US or even based in the UK have websites in so many hundreds of companies or countries in native currency and all kinds of different payment methods. So you're payment agnostic and all of that. But what have you seen in Europe as far as 3D Secure? I know that there are some merchants that will say, we have 3D Secure, so we don't need a fraud solution. And I'm like, but what about account takeover? And what about some of these other things? Oh, you for know, that sure. kind of stuff, right? But do you know what? Even before yeah. we talk about an account related issues, I think, and specifically for American companies who start like entities <laughs> in Europe, they say, oh, we have to do 3D Secure for everything. So we're just going to send everything to 3DS. Going back to the 50% abandonment, failure, right. timeout, right? And you end up essentially missing half of your sale. Now, to guess point. what? I think a lot of people know that, even though it is complicated. There are very specific rules to what you can exempt from having to be sent to 3DS. You don't have to send all of Sure, you can send all of your traffic, then it means you're compliant with the regulation. But you don't have to send all traffic. There are certain steps based on the fraudulent nature of your business, historical fraud rates that you've had, and the order amount. So almost 90% of the orders that are under 100 euro can be exempted from 3DS if you are in good standing for fraud. Oh. And then, again, that's where tools like Sofforder come into play that have this robust PSD2 uh, solution can optimize that. And instead of just sending all of your $20 transactions to 3DS, because you have to, you send only the 10% that are most likely to be risky. And you're essentially winning back 45% of the traffic that would have been abandoned in the 3DS right. capacity. And when you think about it on those low order amounts, it's even more important because if I'm buying a watch for 50 grand, I wish I would, but I don't can afford it now, but maybe one day. We're just all not going to imagine. Of course, I'm okay with my banker calling and getting a tag. Like, it's fine. It's a lot right. of money. Sure. <laughs> like, it's absolutely fine. If they don't call you, you're worried. Like, yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, the tolerance to friction changes with what you're buying. But if I am, if I'm using whatever, like a food delivery company in the UK and I'm trying to get a, a slice and a Coke, whatever, and I'm just not getting the effing text because of 3DS timeout, I'm just going to go somewhere else. And if I could exempt all of those small transactions, it becomes very significant to user experience, to the revenue you're capturing and all the things we've talked about. To the people who say that Europe is not a problem to send everything to 3DS, I say not at all. It's the, it's the other way around. You have to think about what's, what can be exempted from 3DS. And again, the rates can change. It depends on the industry you work at. It depends on the fraudulent risk appetite you have and the risk profile of your traffic, but there are so many things that uh, you can do with, with PSD2. Yeah. And I think one other point 
is that 3DS isn't cheap. It's not free. Do I think that Interchange should cover some of the products that the card brands own and run? Sure, maybe, but that's not, I need to pick my battles. As you and many <laughs> other people tell me, I can't point. save the world in every way. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, I agree. In many instances, it depends on your relationship with your PSP or your network. Mm-hmm. You can get it for, it is free, at least representative free, but maybe you pay more for the processing fee. But, right, but those incremental fees, when you know that, and I think there's such a difference in having a provider understands these details because no one who works for a company that, like, you're never, your company never gives you enough time to be able to learn everything you need to do for a new market that you're going to enter. I swear, I don't know how many times merchants will be like, okay, I was just in four rooms that were going to Brazil and I have a month. It's a, <laughs> there's a lot that you don't. You're a payer processor and you don't have a fraud tool. And so learning all of that from scratch is just impossible in any amount of time, but especially those short amount of time. So that's a really good thing. And just knowing that there's other ways to do things and that they might and be open to the fact that they might be better, I think is one of the reasons why I really enjoy working with you and your team is because you guys don't ever settle. Whether it's from a specific fraud threat, like the master manipulators with address manipulation, where that was just mind blowing to me that I had a group of 50 merchants on a call all talking about this, varying from my fraud provider said that there is no way that they can identify this and that this is unprecedented and no one can identify this to, oh, I don't think I have this problem, but I'll show up at the call and find out. And it was bizarre to me. And so I learned pretty quickly. I usually ask retailers offline, hey, who are you using if I don't already know? And there were two fraud providers that kept coming up for the merchants that were like, we're not really seeing this. Or if we are, like it's taken care of. And there was really only one that was pretty well known. The other one wasn't as well known. But you guys were it. And I had my doubts. And I've been honest with you guys about this. I didn't know that there was much differing you between your company as well as some of the other ones that are similar or that started around the same time or had similar business models at the same time. But there's been several different things over the last year or so that I've identified, wow, it's different. And part of it's because not every fraud provider stays at the top of their game forever. I know that's something you guys have watched other people do. And so you hope to be different in that way. But also it's the fact that you do things in a different way. One thing that blew my mind when we got on the call, because you were talking about address manipulation, how one of the problems was because they were just adding an extra letter in the alphabet or something like that, orders weren't being caught from the negative list because a lot of fraud providers, and this is just something we didn't know till somebody figured it out on the fraud side and exploited the heck out of it, especially during Black Friday, Cyber Monday and the holidays and all that. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go back and listen to the Master Manipulator episodes <laughs> from November because, wow, and I covered it, I think, but at least we tried. But and you said, oh, we don't have negative lists. And I just, I don't know why, but I was like, how? Why don't you have, you said, we don't have positive or negative lists. So that shocked me. But I'd love for you to just share a little bit about what happened in that and maybe why you don't have that either. Sure. I think what's really, I feel okay to say because it's definitely not my, not my idea or innovation, but I think the genius of Porter is the fact that we really try to focus, like our model, trying to focus on the persona that sits now on their device and making that transaction. What they say they are, who they say they are, 
Okay. Even what's the device they say they use, the, everything, or the addresses they use are important, but they are not what we're looking for. Now, if you remember, beginning of a conversation, I hinted towards it, I have a Hebrew accent, a pretty strong one I'm okay with. You're okay. You know, that's my accent. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I cannot change it. I can try to act like someone else. I can dress up different it clothes. I can, I can dye my hair. I can put glasses on. I can put Groucho Marx mustache on. But the minute I'll open my mouth and start talking, you'll figure out that maybe might not be able to say it's about name round, but it's this I've heard this person I've known. I, I know or this person really reminds me of someone I've already seen. Now, when you think about it, it's pretty similar when you look at online identity. Now, if we'll use that Hebrew accent to things that we carry with us on our device without knowing. These things can be super simple, like the time zone that your device is set to. If I'm a fraudster and I'm setting up multiple fake devices and on multiple fake identities and I try to operate in a big fraud scam of some sort, I might not be smart enough to change my time zone each time I generate this new identity. The time zone that my computer is set to. Simple things, right? Now then, I'm not sure. Like I have Hebrew installed on my browser. That's a very nice go-to example. And if I were to see five users that have the same time zone, Hebrew installed on a browser, they're shopping from a certain high-end, one of those flashy luxury bags site, and they're shipping it all to different addresses, maybe in the same zip code, maybe not. And then I know that zip code is in Montana, but they all have Hebrew on the browser who speaks Hebrew in Montana. And if you think about those, and that's just one example using two data elements, right? The left and when, so when you apply that logic over a larger set of data points that said fraud vendor us can connect from user behavior analytics and you use the same kind of probability linking analysis of those items, you get to figure out who's the same person even without them having anything in common. So when those people change addresses and you've mentioned that maybe they add a random character, I've seen things that amazingly simple. You have address line one or address line two, sometimes even address line three on your address. I've seen cases where 500 different transactions, 500 different addresses in line one all generate an AVSY response for all those haters out there. Yes, that people know what they're doing. And then on the address line two, it literally says, hey, delivery guy, please ship it to a different address, whatever Good it job. is. And, and people will do it because, well, they care, they're seeing instructions and they'll go there. And then you see all those 500 transactions all have different addresses, shipping address, but in the common, it's all the same warehouse and Battleware or wherever that there's zero delivery taxes. And this is, and that's how they do it. It's so simple, so elegant, and it annoys me. <laughs> they are so smart, those people. But a lot of them were low tech, for, right? Yeah. But it's yeah, because exactly. a lot of absolute, you know, most online merchants use some form of fraud prevention. And almost always they're looking at line one, but maybe not. Well, I shouldn't say almost always, but a lot of times they're looking at line one. Maybe they're looking they're at not everything. looking at line two, or maybe they are looking at everything, but they are able to adjust it the same way. But also if you are working and relying on negative lists, then you're assuming that each individual address is its Must own be one-to-one match. Yeah. One-to-one match. And this group realized, huh, all I have to do is do this or that. Or they were also getting to the point, because it's that way with a lot of types of fraud. And I think you mentioned there earlier too, where fraudsters are, it's all about like survival of the fittest, right? Where they're not just going to stop. Oh, okay. This didn't work. If they've already figured out a way to monetize your products or your services, they're not going to stop. Yeah. yeah. They're not going generally into that good night. So 
Instead, they're just going to be continually iterating. I saw many of the different patterns across lots of merchants, and I know you did too. I wasn't looking at the data as closely as you were, but hearing from the retailers saying, hey, okay, first they start with the easy one, right? Like 13A, 13B, 13C, whatever it is. And then they do this and they do that. And then at some point, they were able to put in, they found that some systems were not checking zip code to city name or zip code number to state. And so they were changing that around too. And knowing that the carriers will ship to zip code, but they'll, they don't care what's in the city and the state. So yeah. they're changing it around to be Seattle, Georgia with a zip code in New York. And it's going to get shipped in New York. But in your system. Fraudsters. Yeah. Fraudsters will try anything all the time. <laughs> they're and like they're not. Yes. And they're not. They're, they don't have sprints of development. They <laughs> don't need to get signing or sign off from management approval. to do things. Budget. They'll just do it. And whatever works, they'll do it more. And classic. And, and that's exactly how things happen. And if you're not stopping it on time, I'm just continue to hammer over and over again, or even if, and this is the idea, even if you're using a vendor for 90% of your traffic, and then you're going to do 10% of the traffic your own, all the fraudsters need to do is to make sure that they can jump between those groups. So if they figure out something that they'll do that makes them go through the manual inspection or whatever it is, like all these things, those decisions that you're making as a fraud manager impact the way fraudsters interact with your site. And it's not saying there's the right or wrong way to do it. There's ways that I would recommend. There's not a right or wrong way, but we have to remember that these things impact the way fraud turns out. Same goes for good users. But with good users, that's all we do. We do it we analyze the funnel. We want to see what happens. We do A-B tests. What happens if the button is orange? What happens if the button is orange? And the fraud says, no one checks unless we let them do things and we just <laughs> hope they'll catch them. And those things are important. They're really important. Yeah. And I would say while there isn't one 100% right way or one another was that wrong way, I would say that the performance data speaks for itself. And you were talking about false positives earlier, and I couldn't help but think of and want to mention that we'll be, Shoshana and I actually get to share this information soon, and I'm so excited about it. But one of the other things Porter did was invest in the first annual Fraudology benchmarking survey. And I don't know if you've gotten to see that raw data yet for across over 500 merchants. And we asked people who had fraud in their title. So it's people you know who care about this and are looking at it. And I got to share some of the preview metrics with a group of people at MRC and in Vegas. I was there. Yes, yes you were. Oh my gosh, I completely forgot. Like we <laughs> got to meet in person for a quick 30 seconds. I wanted to go eat out. Not so even. Yes. I know, I'd never going <laughs> to see you again. Oh, sorry, it's the week. That's the way my life is, especially there. But you're right. So you know that one of the things I shared was that one in five merchants said that they have an internal approval rate. So this is after the bank has done their thing, right? And they just basically taken the bank to their word for it and thought, okay, I can't do anything different. After the bank makes their approval decision, that the merchant's approval is under 85%. That's saying that they're assuming 
that over 15% of the transactions that are approved by the bank are fraud. That is insane to me. So many merchants, they, and yeah, if, maybe if you have high dollar or whatever, like maybe there you might have a, a couple basis points different than another merchant, but you shouldn't be in the high 90s. And if you aren't, like there's something wrong and there's something that can be fixed. And I see it way too often. And this could be a much longer conversation about all the things that are selected that do that. But I think sometimes it's just assuming that, oh, okay, the way we're doing it must be working or it's fine. No, if your data is telling you that you're canceling 15% of your transactions, that's a lot of money, especially for enterprise merchants. And it's insane. And there was a merchant recently who was very insistent in wanting to get a false positive percentage. So they wanted to be able to tell their, their or I think their bosses had asked them, what should we assume what should we assume our false positive rate? Is there an industry standard of false positive rate? And I was like, absolutely not, because that depends on so many factors, like you said, right? Not just who's your core provider, but what else are you doing and how are you using it and what are you doing internally and all these other things. What layers do you have? Are you using them correctly? Are you optimizing them? Are all what country is it in? What you know, all those things. Is it does this fraud provider based mostly on credit card payments or other payments, or is it agnostic? Because that matters too, because behaviors will be different on different payment methods. And I said, I think the most important thing is to look at your approval and decline rate and I doubt it and compare that to others in the industry. And hey, this is what this survey said. I provided a little bit ahead of time for them. And I said, and actually you can guess what your false positive rate is that way, because the other challenge is there's so many different ways that merchants will look at false positives. And we'll actually talk about that from the survey because we asked that question. So I don't even, I, when we were reading the survey, I told Shoshana, we can't ask what people's false positive percentage rate is. We first have to ask if they're even measuring it. And if so, how are they measuring it? Because nobody measures it the That's same way. That's too much. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's, and if you're, if everybody's measuring it a different way, it's not going to matter anyways, right? The percentage doesn't matter. And so I said, you can find a false positive by saying, here's what our approval rate and, and decline rate are compared to that average merchant. And then that can be at least close enough to your false positive rate. I mean, merchant learned that there was a pretty big percentage that there's not just an industry standard that you can just say, oh, okay, yeah, the average merchant declines 3%. Good customers, no, I can tell, I don't say other company names that I don't work with, but there's some of them that their false positive rate is in the tens of percent. And it's frustrating to me, but capitalism is capitalism and people can choose by the market. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess the point say, is I just want to Yeah. And look, if you're a, that's a problem with offering the insurance covered policy yeah. is that sometimes as a vendor, you have too much skin in the game yeah. and then you default to just reject more traffic. So you get to keep your margins. I don't know who those vendors you meant are. I am running off assumptions, uh, but I and because, yeah, and I think that's a good point. And I think it'd probably be fair to assume that might have been something that you guys looked at and were like, oh, this might be impacting it too much. Let's give companies options so that we don't have the skin in the game, so that we don't feel bad about. So if we decline, because um, I often see high dollar transactions, if there's a chargeback liability shift on the fraud provider, oftentimes those high dollar transactions are declining especially if the provider isn't doing right now financially globally, which is just absolutely insane. <laughs> that makes yeah. a difference. 
Um, I'll uh, let you in with a little secret. Yeah. Our actual fraud models are not even aware if a certain merchant is covered or not in terms of the charters. We just provide our performance and it's only the financial agreement between us. So but, even if we wanted to, we could not change our performance based on how much skin we have in the game. I think it's important to put out there. Yeah. Yeah. I always think it's important to like look behind, uh, look under the hood, so to speak, right? Not just take anyone's yep. word for it, but understand how does your technology work? How does this work? How is, what are you deciding on? And the fact that you shared, you're, you're looking not, you're not just taking everyone's word for it on who they are. You're looking behind that. And yeah, it's uh-huh. important, but you're not even basing the bulk of your decisions on that as much as you are the persona behind it. That matters because obviously we know people lie. Obviously fraudsters lie, right? We can't take their word for anything. You know what? Good (laughs) users lie also. That's a very good point. Yeah. But if you're taking a fraudster's word for it, that this is their name and address, like that doesn't make sense either. But you're right. (laughs) Users lie all the time too. I don't always spell my name right when I'm making orders and purchases online. Maybe it's fine. Maybe you want to buy something for your husband and you have to send it to some other address and it might be whatever. It might be looked as risky. What I'm trying to say is, hey, is the user that's currently in the transaction, the owner of Carissa's payment. Right. Yeah. And if the answer is yes, I don't care where it's being shipped because hmm. if I've established that it's you do whatever you want with your money, that might be dangerous too. Yeah, hopefully, it's like surprise your husband with a nice gift and not to send it to someone else. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'm very glad that he doesn't listen to this podcast, this episode, or any of it. Because if he when you buy me, I'm gonna, he has way too expensive taste in my perspective. But Doriel, speaking of dangerous, we could talk all day, but there are a few things I've been asking on one of the, a couple of the ads for people to provide questions to for, and we haven't gotten all those yet. So I think that I might be asking you back to come for an Ask Doriel Everything episode. So if anyone has any questions on what you've talked about yet on this episode or any further questions from this conversation send them to me on LinkedIn or info at chargelicsconsulting.com. And I will just, we will do our very best to sync up our schedules in the next month and a half or so. And I'll you back. I have so much fun talking with you. And I have no doubt that my listeners are going to enjoy getting your perspective because you really have a 10,000 foot view from on the data, not just the anecdotal like I do. So it's fascinating. I'll be happy to come back again. And this has been extremely fun. Thanks again, Grace, for having me here. I'm looking forward for the next time. Yeah, me too. Thanks again to you too. And I will talk to you soon. Bye-bye. It was probably really obvious that I just had a lot of fun talking with Doriel. And I hope that it was informational and interesting to you too. And as you probably heard me in real time, I just made an executive decision because there were still a couple questions I was going to ask him that listeners had already sent in that were both like one of them was fraud specific as far as specific fraud tactics and strategies of approaching them. And another one or two were specific to Forder and their company's history and all of that. I know he has a willingness to answer any questions that anyone may have. So I'm grateful that he and I just verified with his team have, while I put him on the spot, they have agreed that they think this is a good idea. If any questions came to your mind as you were listening to this, for me, I know I have at least one question to ask him around the liability shift to 3D Secure, but if that still impacts your ratio for chargebacks, 
as well as a reputational question that Merchant recently had, not with 3D Secure specifically, but just in general that was related. I'm already compiling my questions. I hope you send it yours as well to me. So I, if we're connected on LinkedIn, that might be best. I will ask my assistant to compile those. So I may not get a chance to reply to you, but I will very much appreciate them. You can also email them to info, I-N-F-O, at chargelinuxconsulting.com. And I will have Doriel on a future episode to ask us anything, and we'll go over those. Also, if you would like a chance to learn a little bit more about some of the innovations and product improvements that Forder has implemented in the last 12, 18 months, or you're interested in seeing a demo of their product, but you don't really like the commitment of one-on-one -on -one sales meetings or if you're attending a webinar, you know that most companies will follow up some more incessantly than others. That is not the case in this <laughs> for this provider. But I know that sometimes people, even though they want to attend a webinar, they're like, I'm not going to because I don't want to get spammed afterwards. So as a part of this quarter sponsorship by Forder, I will be hosting a private and anonymous webinar with a demo component for online merchants. If you're a fintech, if you're a marketplace, if you work for an e-commerce company. And the way it'll work is that Forder actually won't know that you're invited or that you're attending at all. So one of the things that's a little different about that is usually I just invite everyone within my contacts list. But because I know that this conversation was so good and that some of you might want to ask more questions without the pressure of having a conversation one-on-one -on -one and all of that, but you still want to be able to learn about it. We have created a wait list for you in the show notes to sign up to attend that call. I believe it'll be the third week of May on a Wednesday around 9 a.m. Pacific. We will be setting those dates in stone very soon. Uh, but if you want an invite to that webinar, sign up on the waitlist that is linked in the, today's show notes. I will make sure to invite you. Once you get on the Zoom call, you get to control how anonymous you are. Are you on camera? Are you not on camera? Do you change your display name on Zoom? That is completely up to you. We've done some of these before. Uh, I just don't think I've ever mentioned them on the podcast before. And merchants especially appreciate being able to learn about new products and know what's out there and even compare them to the technology that their current providers are doing or innovating or those types of things. And then somewhere down the line, they might reach out to me and ask for an introduction. Sometimes they might reach out to the vendor or maybe they realize in that demo that, huh, wow, that's really cool, but doesn't exactly solve the problem I have. And that's totally good. Those are the two opportunities to get to ask Doriel more questions. He will be on that private and anonymous webinar. I need a much better name for it. And actually the, the name I've been unofficially calling it is group date. And I don't know if that's necessarily appropriate either. So I don't know. I'll add it to my list to rename it. But I know he is just obviously he's a wealth of knowledge and they're really doing a lot of really cool things to ensure that despite the changing landscape of fraud, that their clients are still getting maximum revenue and minimum loss. So I'm excited for you to learn more and get to ask your questions and for you to hear my guest next week. I'll talk to you soon. 
thank you again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.